You're listening to Money and Meaning, Unlikely Allies, Building New Markets for Impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. Check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. Let's join the conversation. Welcome back to Money and Meaning. This is your host, Lindsay Smalling. In this special episode, we've compiled some highlights from SOCAP 19, the 12th annual SOCAP flagship conference, which took place in October at the Fort Mason Center in San Francisco. The weather really helped us out this year, and I think it was one of the best convenings in our history. We gathered over 3,000 people from more than 70 countries, and to see so many collaborations and discussions at the picnic tables and throughout the main pavilion is incredibly inspiring. The side conversations are so valuable that some attendees never make it to a session, so this highlight episode is for them too. With over 150 breakout sessions and six hours of content in our plenary sessions, it's pretty daunting to distill a highlights episode, so I want to give a big shout out to my co-host on this podcast, Alex Kravitz, who spent hours and hours listening to recorded content to bring you these gems. The theme that ties this episode together is at the core of SOCAP our belief in the power of cross-sector collaboration. Unlocking the power of markets to accelerate positive impact and realizing the promise of impact investing and social entrepreneurship is not just a conversation for investors. It's not exclusively a finance conversation. It needs to be a conversation that invites the perspective and participation of all sectors and breaks down silos because it will take all of us to create change on the world's toughest challenges. I want to start with an example of really big systems change level thinking by Neville Crawley, the relatively new CEO of Kiva, which is explained in this clip in such human common sense terms. Kiva has been historically a microfinance organization, unlocking access to small loans for millions of entrepreneurs in emerging markets. Under Neville's leadership, they're really following the thread of what their existing technology and data could potentially do to address financial barriers for the underbanked in emerging markets, which has led to collaborations with other credit institutions, with government, and the potential is just starting to be explored. So you've got 1.4 billion capital being moved in financial inclusion, which solves a hell of a lot of the SDGs, to be honest. Um, that's being expanded. Then you move into sort of the institutional money, bringing even more capital in, creating an asset class of financial inclusion, to be honest. And then that's not enough. It's time for a systems change, which I think we don't talk about enough, as I said before. So do you want to just talk a bit more in depth about what the protocol is and what yeah. you're doing in Sierra Leone? So um, caveat, um, Kiva Protocol is a blockchain project, so some people may want to leave now. There's very mixed feelings about it. Um, But I want to go back to where it came from, because it didn't start with a let's do a blockchain project. It turned out that that was the right technical solution for the problem. But it it, it actually started out, I was in, I said in the first few months when I was on this this world tour, I was out in rural Kenya, and I was just talking to people about their lives, and particularly about their financial lives. And and a, a woman in Kenya was sort of walking me through how she got a cow loan and got some more loans and built this farm and she got another loan and built this hardware store and she'd been borrowing and repaying for 20 years, you know, $1,000 or so at a time, one-year loans, you know, 30% or so interest rate. I mean, many of you have understand exactly how this works from various sources, including some Kiva sources. 
And, and, and they're saying, well, what's next? You know, what, you're, you're such an awesome entrepreneur. What, what are you going to do next? I said, well, I've, I've got this plot of land, and my dream is to build this house for my family, for three generations of my family on this land. Like, cool. So maybe I come back in a couple of years and get the house tour. And he's like, oh, no, I'm, I'm never going to build that house. You know, I've got the land, but the house will never get built. You know, it's like, not in my lifetime. It's like, wow, that's, that's terrible. Why, why is that? And, and she sort of explained, not in, the, not in these words, but she explained, like, all of my loans are, have been, you know, they've, we've been different providers, and they're not centralized, and they're not recorded to be credit history. Like, I don't, have a, I don't have a credit rating, and I don't have an identity that it's all tied to. And I was like, huh. And, and as I was getting the, the plane back, I was like, but we have some identity for her, right? And we have, we have several million dollars people, several million people's identity and credit history on our servers in Silicon Valley Colo up the street, and we just don't share them with anyone, right? And if you take our several hundred partners, they have hundreds of millions of identities and credit histories. So it's actually not that this isn't being recorded. It's not being recorded in the right format, and it's not being done in a way that can be shared. And we could move billions and billions of dollars, and it's not going to change the fundamental situation of that woman or many, many people like her unless we get it recorded. And she's led this exemplary financial life. She's a much better credit risk than I am. I'm certain of that. And, and, and yet it just doesn't show up. She doesn't gain the benefit of that. And so we started to, so the thought experiment of how would we put our data and get others to put their data, and it's really about data, it's not about the money, the money will follow. And, and we're like, hmm. And, and so we started to just build technology to do this, and we built this prototype system, which had to have some characteristics of being very, very cheap digital identity. We had a real strong human rights view that it has to be self-sovereign identity, meaning we don't own it, the government doesn't own it, the person owns their identity. We had to be the data, the credit record had to be separate from the identity because, you know, Equifax, that's not a good look. We don't want to do that. Um, you know, a whole bunch of things. We're like, well, how would we design the system? And we, and we came to this idea of doing this decentralized ledger system where identity could truly be owned by the individual, where the data is across a bunch of distributed databases, which we or no one else has access to, all of, all of this stuff. I said, okay, well, if we really want to do system change, real system change, how would we implement this? That, you know, the way to do it would be go to governments and get governments to adopt it for their entire population. That would be the single best way to do this. Because if you do 70, 80 countries like this, you've, you've solved the whole problem. And so we said, well, you know, we probably need a country of between one to 10 million people, quite high financial exclusion, you know, blah, 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 a bunch of criteria. And we worked with UNDP and UNCDF to just go, go talk to central bankers and ministers of finance and, and so on. And um, at the UN General Assembly last year, actually much to our surprise, in some ways, the president of Sierra Leone stood up on stage and said, and so we're adopting Kiva Protocol as our national system. And we said, oh, wow, okay. Then I guess we have to actually build this. And, and we started, so we started building it in January, and just a, a month ago, the first Sierra Leonean, um, Nancy, fingerprinted in, and in less than three seconds performed an EKYC check to prove who she is. Um, and she'd previously been rejected by a bank six times. She didn't have the documents and so on. So the, the system's live in less than a year. By the end of this year, every Sierra Leonean, so 5.3 million adults, will have go in, fingerprint in, perform the EKYC check, so basically full, full inclusion for everyone. And by the end of next year, we will have every MFI, bank, and credit union wired up into the system. So we'll have gone end-to-end -end in Sierra Leone in, in less than two years, which is also, importantly, less than a presidential election term.
So the scale and potential here is remarkable, and over the last five years of SOCAP, we've seen increased participation by the international development community, which has tremendous scale, expertise, and resources. These public sector players have really been reaching out to the private sector and the impact investing community. Participants from the highest levels of U.S. and international government aid programs have shifted the emphasis of their interventions from providing aid to supporting self-reliance, and they recognize that collaboration with the private sector is necessary to develop sustainable economies. This next clip is a conversation between David Bohegan, Acting President and CEO of OPIC, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, and Bonnie Glick, Deputy Administrator of USAID. So, Bonnie, I'd love to start this conversation by asking you to better describe what uh, USAID's been doing, as well as talk more about the public-private partnerships you've been helping to catalyze, and so impressed by the private sector engagement strategy you've put together. So, David, thank you very much. And I, I, I will spell out what our acronym is, though we do have the best acronym in the U.S. government. The United States Agency for International Development is w what we call USAID. And USAID is the largest agency within the U.S. government, though not the only agency, that focuses on the development priorities of the United States. One of the things that we've been focusing on since my boss, the administrator, came into USAID two years ago is engaging with the private sector, finding ways to say, hey, guys, there's never going to be enough private, cap there's never going to be enough public capital out there. The U.S. government, all of you as taxpayers, are never going to uh, contribute enough to solve all of the problems that we see in around the world. Uh, so we have to work with the private sector. One of the things that we've started to do too is change the language that we use about development. And you and I have had this conversation a number of times. We talk at USAID within the within the government about developing countries, but you all, impact investors, talk about emerging markets. We talk about aid beneficiaries. You all talk about customers and clients. The bottom line is you all have a much more dignified set of terms to refer to the same group of people that we're all trying to impact around the world. I say, thank you. No mom wants to raise her child to be a refugee. Every mom wants to raise her child to be a consumer. So for that, we're grateful to all of you for the work that you're doing to help those kids become consumers and for next generations to have better lives than the lives of their parents. But we do a lot of this through public-private partnerships and we, what we refer to as private sector engagement. We want to work with all of you. We're the public, you're the private. What we can do from a government perspective is offer seed capital that then gets catalyzed by investors. David and I were together in May in the Netherlands at the Global Entrepreneurship Summit, and there we announced a Women's World Banking Program where USAID invested $500,000. Uh, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation uh, matched that with a $25 million uh, uh, debt guarantee. And with that, we're looking to catalyze $100 million of investor 
impact. And that's pretty remarkable, $500,000 of our collective tax dollars being leveraged into a $100 million investment. Bravo to all of us. So that's what we mean when we talk about engaging with the private sector public-private partnerships. They can be at that large scale, they can be at much smaller scales, and we're interested in the whole spectrum of them. We also talk about, as the administrator said, and you said, a journey to self-reliance. So I think it's helpful for this audience. You know, when I've been at SOCAP in the past, sometimes I sit down with some of the most amazing social entrepreneurs in the world, and I have to ask them, how do you make money? Mm -hmm. Because we invest with private equity firms and political risk insurance and project finance, but you're not always investing because there's a continuum that goes from grants to development finance into the private sector. So do you want to talk about how that journey looks to you? Sure. We talk all day long about countries being on journeys to self-reliance. Some of the poorest countries in the world have made tremendous progress over the years in terms of being able to have sustainable programs. What does sustainability look like? If you look at a country like Ethiopia, which in my childhood suffered regularly from droughts and famine, and now, even though they have regularly occurring droughts, USAID has invested with US research institutions and universities in the United States. We focused on creating drought-resistant grains. Those drought-resistant grains are able to, to, um, to survive the predictable droughts that countries like Ethiopia are going to have. And so citizens of Ethiopia don't starve the way that they used to. They don't starve. They're able to grow grains that will feed the entire country. That's a remarkable change over time. So where they were in terms of less reliant is now far more along the trajectory of self-reliance. And that's just one small example. But when we look at where countries need to be, we understand that every country around the world that struggles is at a different place along their journey. And our goal in USAID and across the US government is to walk alongside them on that journey to have them be able to be resilient and uh, self-reliant for their own citizens. Now we're going to shift sectors from examining the ways that government and international development are participating in this market-driven impact conversation to philanthropy. In the early days of impact investing, it seemed like a no-brainer that foundations would be one of the first to shift the endowments of their foundations to invest in alignment with their mission. But that shift in thinking has been harder and slower than anticipated, and philanthropy has really been coming under fire with the release of books like Decolonizing Wealth by Edgar Villanueva and Winners Take All by Anand Giri Duradas, which highlight the ways that glorifying philanthropy and impact investing obscures major flaws in the capitalist system. A specific philanthropic tool that's come under attack is donor-advised funds, or DAFs. These are essentially outsourced personal foundations, where the donor gets all of the tax benefits of donating their money to charitable purpose, but DAFs don't have the same regulations as private foundations, which are required to distribute at least 5% of their total assets as charitable grants each year. There are a few critiques here, one being that money sits in DAFs without going to the charitable purpose that was intended. 
another being that tax incentives for philanthropy overall put an unjust amount of decision-making about what problems to solve in the hands of wealthy individuals versus these decisions being made by a democratically elected government, which would receive substantially more tax revenues if these charitable deductions were eliminated or redesigned. I personally love that in this next exchange between Tim Freundlich, who runs a donor-advised fund platform with over a billion dollars in assets, and Kat Taylor, who is herself a very wealthy philanthropist, the two of them pull no punches in laying out the critiques of philanthropy and donor-advised funds. Donor-advised funds, hardly anybody in the outside world knows what they are. In uh, full confession, my husband Tom Steyer and I have used them for years. Uh, when used in best practice, they can do enormous good. Good. They can endow research for years. They can be spent rapidly down uh, to uh, well-worthy nonprofits uh, to sort of attack the problems of our day. But they do raise some issues um, when they're not in best practice. And I'm going to go through those really quick. Uh, in spite of many good actors, um, uh, and that they are the dominant business model of the community foundations, which are place-based organizations, expert in their fields, using donor-advised funds that, uh, are, they, that are hosted there to do the important investing that they're doing. Um, they compete with the commercial entities uh, for these funds. And, uh, while it is their dominant business model, in my humble opinion, their lunch is being eaten by some of the commercials uh, because of the assets under management imperative of the commercial entities. Uh, the, uh, Fidelity Charitable Trust is now the largest nonprofit in the country. Um, it is not unusual for donor advised fund fees to be very low um, in these big investment houses because they know that they're going to drag with them all sorts of other assets under management. And while they're there, they're largely conventionally invested in the very things that we're trying to solve with government and philanthropy, things like fossil fuel and climate change, private prisons, payday lending. And when they go into these donor advised funds, it's not free. They are diverting otherwise very critical government resources called tax proceeds away from government, which is uh, in theory our only real accountable organization in the mix of by and for the people, uh, taking those funds away from uh, public school, uh, climate mitigation, you name it. Uh, and they do it at a rapid rate. The average uh, estimate of how much the government loses is uh, 74 cents and how much tax that the donor pays is 26 cents. So we have to, if we're going to give this kind of tax treatment, we have to worry that it's doing good for us. Uh, the other problem with donor advised funds can be that they are an extension and expansion of the concentration of power in society. So a lot of donor advised funds are used to make large grants to private hospitals, uh, uh, public uh, excuse me, private universities, so on. And you can bet that you have a lot more pull at those institutions when you and your family need to access them. Um, there is no reporting or transparency or very little, especially at the fund level. Uh, and um, it's actually a form of uh, shirking our public duties, I would say. We wouldn't uh, dream of ordinary taxpayers skipping out on their taxes. Why do we give such a benefit to private philanthropists who tend to be in the highest socioeconomic brackets? Um, so we're actually supporting a two-year bill that uh, Assemblywoman Buffy Wicks is carrying, the first year to get reporting and transparency so we can understand the flow of this capital, what it's doing, what it's not doing, how fast it gets dispersed out of these funds, whether it's actually going to other nonprofits or uh, public purpose, or if it's just going into another 
donor advised fund. The worst possibility is that it's going into political spend, especially in hate groups. We just need a lot more information about where, where it's going. I'm going to close this part with just saying uh, I'm uh, very excited to join a community of best practice at East Bay Community Foundation, uh, donor advised fund holders who are willing to train on their own privilege, uh, disperse funds as rapidly as possible, either through investment or grant making to organizations led by people of color and women, uh, avoiding uh, aligning their investment portfolio away from pernicious activities and in favor of good ones, uh, and spending them down as rapidly as possible. So we hope to gather a lot more donors into those kinds of vehicles. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, as a prec, yes. <laughs> I mean, I run a donor advised fund with about 1,300 donors and $1.1 billion. It's kind of the largest pure play impact investing oriented donor advised fund in the country. And although I feel like we've organized ourselves uh, around some principles that are really good practices and we're moving in that direction, I don't disagree with much of anything that you said, even though. I feel a little, you know, it makes me a little antsy, right? Because uh, it's, you know, the government getting involved in our, in our social entrepreneurship is scary from a regulatory standpoint because I don't believe they know what they're doing and a lot of unintended consequences can be built into stuff in last minute, you know, bickering in the hallways to get things through. But I will say that um, I think that we need to get serious. There's, there's a, a, a big social contract to do. Uh, at a national level, and whether it's just lead actors like Impact Assets or we create a coalition um, and, and really push people to sign on to some principles. And the stuff that, that's on our mind is, I mean, these, these assets should be first fast and furious. Uh, they should be furious at the injustice environmental and, ec and economically in the world. Uh, they should be willing to move early and often to the craziest stuff at the deep end of the pool. I mean, it's all supposed to go to charity and as grant making. Like, why shouldn't our whole endowment be activated to do this? And that's what we're trying to do. We're doing three deals a week in private debt and equity, all in the impact space, including revenue rights to nonprofits and first-time fund managers and, and this and that and the other thing. But that's not the practice nationally. So I can't really rebut the, the critique on some level, but I mean, I'll say that you know this, that enablement, that commitment needs to be baked in. Um, the, the 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 commitment to no harm and discrimination in our grant making needs to be baked into your your you know the Southern Poverty Law Center list. You know that that um, uh, example that you gave. Uh, that we have to actually engage and educate and inspire the donor base. We can't just let them be passive, do whatever they want. I think we need to commit to those things along with transparency and inclusivity and, and, and commitments to diversity in, the, in our stakeholder system and how we represent it. If we do all of that and commit to some baseline best practice around payout and things, I mean, we give away 13, 14% a year, I mean, way more than private foundations. Uh, but it's true, some of our accounts, maybe not so much. But anyway, I just want to, like, that's kind of how I process what you're saying. And I do, I feel pretty agitated that we need to take, get, get a coalition going that's, that's willing to take leadership nationally uh, and that we are leaving a lot of stuff unplumbed. In this last clip, we'll highlight a theme that hopefully listeners of this podcast have identified before, advancing racial equity. This has been a content track at SOCAP for the last three years and was really an integrated theme across all of our programming this year. Rip Rapson, president of the Kresge Foundation, and Susan Taylor Batten, president of ABFI, which she'll explain in the clip, are leading thinkers and concrete actors who are starting from the top 
working with investment committees at the largest U.S. foundations to drive racial equity by getting these foundations to commit to diversifying their asset managers. Kresge Foundation has committed to 25% of its managers being led by women or people of color by 2025, and AbbVie is working with other foundations to make similar pledges. AbbVie was founded in 1971. We were founded as the Association of Black Foundation Executives. And our mission is to promote effective and responsive philanthropy in black communities. And we've got a membership of just under 1,000 around the country. And our work really falls into uh, two big buckets, if you will. One is ensuring that black talent and black leadership has the opportunity to lead uh, in the foundation sector in this country. So we're always pushing around um, diversity and ensuring that the C-suite in particular um, is in fact diverse and folks of African descent actually have the opportunity to lead. But we also are also um, very focused on how money flows coming out of foundations and the extent to which um, money is responding to the needs and the issues facing our kids, our families, our communities. Um, So in 2011, which was the 40th anniversary of AbbVie, we began really to look at the uh, work of the organization to date and what was left to do, and again, always being a big proponent of issues of diversity and equity in the field, really focused on the issue of diverse asset management. And I was telling Rip backstage, prior to coming to AbbVie, I was with a very large foundation, good foundation in this country that does great work around kids and families, and I managed the work on diversity and equity there. And um, I used to say, this was about 12 years ago, um, I could walk down the hall and know when I got to a meeting of the investment team, because it would be the only room, quite frankly, that was all white and all male, right? We were making strides as it related to diversity in the C-suite at that foundation, but that one sort of team, that one portfolio um, was a tough nut to crack. So I bought that to my work at AbbVie when I got there 10 years ago. And in 2011, as I said, we started a body of work called Smart Investing. And um, we got into this work to really push for opportunities for minority and women-owned firms to manage foundation endowments. And we got into this work really for three reasons. Um, One, we knew that the data was on our side in terms of performance. And you all know the data, perhaps, um, that minority and women-owned firms perform as well and sometimes outperform other uh, investment firms and organizations. So we knew this was, one, about performance. Two, um, we are really concerned at AbbVie about building and scaling black businesses in this country. There's a lot of research that suggests that if we focus on scaling black businesses, that's a real strategic way to address the racial wealth divide. And so if we were making ways for, for us in particular, black investment firms to manage foundation endowments, we were actually building wealth Mm -hmm. as it relates to scaling black businesses. Um, But the third reason why we got into this work around diverse asset managers is because we did a quick and dirty study of um, black investment firms in particular 
and saw that they were very philanthropic themselves, right? So when you looked at groups like Ariel Investments out of Chicago, you can't overlook you know, what John Rogers and the folks at Ariel have done around issues of education in Chicago and the south side of Chicago in particular. Um, if you looked in Baltimore and the work of Brown Capital Management, you, know, you have to recognize and lift up and really celebrate their philanthropy as well. So um, we thought this was another way, again, to build black wealth um, and also um, facilitate giving in our communities. Mm -hmm. So um, we really began to push in 2011, and over the past five years, um, we've been doing a number of things. We've created the sector's first directory on minority and women-owned firms, because as we talk to foundations and particularly investment teams in foundations about this, the first thing they would say is that we don't know any, right? So we wanted to take that sort of answer off the table and we created a directory that still lives on our website that we push out to our members mm. in foundations around the, mm. around the country. Uh, we created a number of papers over the last couple of years and Rip, when I look at the titles of some of these papers, it actually speaks to the challenge of this work. Um, mm. Investment manager diversity, the hardest taboo to break, <laughs> was the paper that we co-wrote with the Silicon Valley Community Foundation mm. um, in their work on this area. Another one was diverse managers Philanthropy's Next Hurdle, Who Manages the Money? How Foundations Can Democratize Capital. Hmm. That actually is the case study of the W.K. Kellogg Foundation's yeah. work on diverse asset managers. So we're seeing some progress, some slow progress, but progress nonetheless, since we've been pushing on these issues for the last eight years. And one of the leading foundations is Kresge that actually has come out um, publicly and said that we're going to make this a priority for the foundation. Uh, Kresge was the first um, independent or private foundation to sign our diverse asset manager pledge that I'll talk um, a little bit about later. Um, but um, we want to dive into um, a conversation with Rip about why they took on this issue and what you're learning and, and how we get more people uh, mm -hmm. to, to join this movement. So on the issue of diverse asset managers, why is this important? <laughs> I, I was saying to Susan um, before we came on, I, I, I feel redundant because in many ways the case has been made so effectively through the course of the conference and certainly by the previous panel. Um, Rob Manila, many of you may have seen our chief investment officer yesterday made the argument or whenever it was yesterday, I think, made the argument that it's about returns, that when you diversify your managers, when you diversify your own staff, you make better decisions. Uh, and the, the, the evidence is crystal clear, as the previous panel was talking about. Um, and Rob wanted to make sure that I repeated that and repeated that and repeated that. So let me contradict him a little bit. Um, <laughs> my, my sense is that it is about returns. There's no question mm -hmm. that... Um, firms owned by women and people of color can return every bit as well as firms who are, are not. It just defies common sense to think that wouldn't be the case. But I, but I actually think that for an institution like ours, and institutions like ours are more and more common, committed to issues of social justice, social opportunity, it becomes crazy to have one part of your operation not be consistent with the rest of your mm -hmm. operation. Mm -hmm. And so the alignment of purpose around institutional purpose mm -hmm. has been really important to us. And I think third, uh, we have done what I think not quite as many foundations have done, which is to completely integrate our investment 
uh, team with our program teams. They serve on our committees, they help develop hmm. strategies, we don't let them out of the building, we don't send them down the street, we don't let them work in New York. They've got to be part of our ongoing infrastructure. And I think it's made a huge difference on both sides of the ledger. I think our program staff are much more sophisticated about markets and finance. And I think our investment team is much more attuned to the kind of work that the institution is trying to advance. And so it sort of comes more naturally, it seems to me, to them to think about the same kind of issues the rest of the foundation is thinking about. And we've got 105 employees, we're not terribly big, but 13 of those are investment professionals. And so it's really important to me that 15% of our staff be on the, be on the bus. You know, that is actually a model uh, just for the sector. You're right. Not many foundations do that at all. There's this firewall between the program side and the investment side. Matter of fact, I actually joined the, the foundation that I worked for for many years because I wanted to learn how to grow and manage endowments. And I was there for nine years and never once actually was in a conversation around investment management. So just that one um, structural change that you're talking about is huge. Can That's I, huge. Can yeah. I jump the shark? Because I know yeah. you have a whole set of questions. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> I actually think that in the philanthropic community, this is a very big deal. Mm. As we begin looking at mission-related investment more seriously, as we begin looking at the diversification of our portfolios, the hegemony that our investment staff has, uh, I think we need to step back and look at it. Um, it's... It, I. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard from my counterparts and major foundations in America say, well, I would do it except our chief investment officer won't let me do it. I said, say what? Mm -hmm. um, but often they report to a separate board. Um, the president of the organization doesn't have the right to sort of set the agenda, set goals, do performance evaluation. It's all done by sort of classic investment standards of hitting your benchmarks and doing all of the things that a good investment set of professionals does. But again, we either are a single organization or we're not. And I, and I don't mean to be self-righteous about it. I get that people will have different models. But it just seems to me that as our society is moving toward a much more, I think, woke view of what it means to work in the 21st century, that sort of independent, hegemonous sort of relationship of investment officers by way of the rest of the the organization doesn't make as much sense to me. Now I see why people are asking you to come around and talk. <laughs> Rip was just saying, people are asking me to come around and talk to their boards, now I see why. Okay, because uh, I don't hear that that much. Um, Rip, 25 by 25. Mm. Uh, you all an announced this campaign at our conference in Detroit a couple of months ago. Talk about the campaign. Well, I think it's one of the reasons I can't be too self-righteous is that we announced it two months ago, not 10 years ago. And uh, so I, I don't want to sort mm -hmm. of overstate it. but. In some ways, it became um, uh, almost an, an inevitability. Um, we, uh, we are now at about 16% uh, managers of color and, and women-managed um, funds. Um, moving to 25% doesn't seem that big a jump, but it represents a level of intentionality that I think is really critical. And it happened for a couple of reasons. One, as I mentioned, we have a CIO who is deeply competent, committed, and, and fully aligned. Um, second, we have an organization that is fully aligned. But third, <laughs> we have an outside investment uh, group. Um, we walked into a, a room, uh, oh, I don't know, a year or so ago, and we had our whole investment staff sort of sitting along one wall. Twelve white men and a woman. 
And Myra Drucker, one of our great outside directors, looked and kind of tilted her head. And he looked, she looked at me and she said, that's just not acceptable. <laughs> she didn't even have to say the what wasn't acceptable. We all knew. <laughs> and I think for an enlightened CIO and for an organization committed to the work, it was sort of a tipping point. And Rob Manila immediately went to work trying to figure out how through internship programs, through more expansive pipeline development, through sort of different lens for um, manager selection, we could really go to work. And it, it, so it became almost um, a no-brainer to mm -hmm. say there is no reason in the world we shouldn't commit to 25% of our managers being managers of color or women by 2025. And if we can get there faster or increase that number, we will. Hopefully these clips from SOCAP 19 give you a sense of the cross-sector conversation we host, the scale of the challenges that a variety of actors are working to address, and the proactive, urgent, humble approach being taken by leaders from every corner of the global markets. If there is one thing that I come away with after every SOCAP, it's that the best ideas often come from where you least expect them, and that we've barely scratched the surface of what's possible when we break down silos and bring together valuable strangers. Thank you for listening to Money and Meaning. This is the last episode of season two, and we'll be back in early 2020 with more conversations of unlikely allies building new markets for impact. We appreciate you taking a moment to subscribe to Money and Meaning, share it with a colleague, and rate us on iTunes. We love sharing these conversations with a broader audience and have some great episodes lined up for the new year. But in the meantime, thanks again for listening, and we wish you all a happy holiday season. You've been listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are heard. To learn more, check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SoCapMarkets. Thanks for listening.